You're in the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So Chris O'Brien is getting used to his new home in upstate New York on a mountaintop. I don't know what kind of internet connection he has, and we'll have to be testing that once he gets used to things. Curtis Collins has been gracious enough to be the guest co-host, and our main guest this week is none other than Jerome Clark. And I thought of him not too long ago when we had David Halperin on the show because we were all amongst this group, the original teen UFO researchers. Those were the days. Do you remember them, Jerry, or have those memories gone away? Oh, no. No, I, I, I remember them. Who could forget them? I mean, that was here we, here we still are. They must have made an impression on us. Either that or it caused a mental illness from which we cannot recover. <laughs> oh, we're just creatures of habit. Something like that. So posted on UFO updates on Facebook by our old friend Chris Rutkowski is a copy of an issue, a cover release of an issue from Saucer News dated June 1965. And the reason I mention this also is because in the subtitle it says incorporating the UFO reporter, which was my magazine that I merged with Saucer News or at least gave him the pleasure of taking it over. In exchange for which I had a staff position on Saucer News as its managing editor. So I guess I was complicit in some of the things he did then. Well, not all of the things, but I'm sure you remember those days, Jerry. I'll give you the headline of this particular issue. Is NICAP an Air Force front? Now, I don't know if we've ever said this before. Jim and I designed that headline together, working in concert. (laughs) Well, you and Jim were good at stirring the pot. I think that's basically the beginning and end of Jim's interest in UFOs. I remember in 1959, there was a, an article using the term loosely, I think by Michael Mann in Saucer News, that was an expose of uh, Donald Kehoe, who of course was NICAP's most famous director. And he used completely out of context quotes to make uh, Kehoe look like some kind of it wasn't clear whether he was supposed to be a dope or a charlatan, but anybody who'd read Kehoe's books knew what man was up to, and, and man knew very well what he was up to as well. But it certainly stirred the pot. Now, some people might think that Michael G. Mann was one of Jim's pseudonyms or something, but yes, there was indeed a Michael Mann, no relationship to the movie director. Or the environmental scientist. That's true. That's right. I shouldn't forget that. He came from Brooklyn, New York. He was a big sci-fi fan. He was also good at making fake tape recordings. He was pretty good at the editing tape and editing block, and we'd use like a razor blade to cut recorded tapes apart and change words. I can do it much better now digitally, but Michael was pretty good at it. So, yes... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he was a real character in those days. Yeah. Yeah, I read upon that uh, Kehoe article when I was working on the 
UFO encyclopedia in the 1990s, and uh, I did remember it, but reading it again was quite an experience. It was quite shameless, but it was funny in its own kind of deranged way. When Jim had a target, his friends would rally around him and join. And this is what happened there. Now, the reason this story is NICAP and Air Force Front came about is because of what happened due to my association with Jim Mosley, where one day I'd gone to NICAP's headquarters. I'd been there before. I met Major Kehoe, and he was not around often, as you well know, Jerry, but I talked to Richard Hall, and we seemed to get along okay. I returned with some friends, including Alan Greenfield, Rick Hilberg, and maybe one or two others. And as soon as I was seen, once he opened the door at the office of NICAP, he pointed his finger at me, shaking in anger, you're not welcome here. Never figured out why, except at that point, it was known that I was working with Jim Mosley very closely at Saucer News as the managing editor, which meant... I'd sometimes even write Jim's editorials for him or take his ideas and extend them. I helped him put together the magazine for as long as I worked there. The following year, I got a real job as a radio broadcaster. But this was fun. It was a nice way to get my head around developing my writing style and all that stuff. So I can't say it was a bad experience. And Jim could be a barrel of laughs. Unless you wanted to do serious UFO research. But I'll tell you one more story before we go on. In those years, there was a UFO sighting at Wanakee Reservoir, Wanakee Reservoir in New Jersey. And Jim Mosley was obviously not averse to creating hoaxes. So one day he calls the police at Wanakee and he creates a fake sighting. And I'm listening to him from the other room and laughing not too loudly because we didn't want to be heard on the phone. And then not long thereafter, there was a real sighting at Wanakee. And I remember going out to the reservoir there one evening with Jim and his other friends. And I had never been so cold. I was just shivering. And probably because I didn't take a warm enough jacket. That's all I remember. It was very cold. That was it. But in this case, what? Art became reality or the hoax became reality? or he created something, that was weird. Yeah, that does sound strange. About the headline, though, I wanted to ask, there, uh, uh, Project Blue Book at one time was, was, I don't know if it was ever regarded too highly as being legitimate, but but with, with NICAP, and this has happened with other organizations, and we're seeing this now with MUFON and some others, because of their inability to provide answers, people are wondering, are they in on it? Are, are they part of the cover-up? I mean, it's almost like, uh, oh, the movie Backdraft, where the one of the firemen was setting the fires. You know, he was a suspect. So, it's, you know, since you can't solve the problem, you must be causing the problem. So, is Jerry, have you? What's your observation on the psychology of that? That the audience turning on the well, I don't know if we call it authority figure, but what's your take on that? Well, that's, uh, you know, the paranoid style, which, you know, it shows up just about in all aspects of American life, you know, conspiracy theories and uh, paranoia about things. You know, I don't, you know, 
I really have come to see the UFO groups as so incredibly marginal that they loom large in our lives, of course, because we were part of them, or we were at least aware of them. We read their publications. We knew people who belonged to them if we didn't ourselves. But they really had virtually no effect on larger society, including social views of UFOs. I think that um, views about UFOs and, and opinions about UFOs were actually shaped by sightings, which you know existed even if there had never been any UFO groups. There would have been sightings. They would have gotten into newspapers from time to time. And um, I'm just just really amazed at how, you know, for all these UFO groups loom large in our lives, really nobody else knew anything about them. You know, UFO groups were always, you know, getting themselves in a state about, oh, this or that misdeed by somebody in some UFO group set ufology back 10 years. No, it didn't, because nobody knew anything about ufology. And nobody, you know, nobody in elite media could even name a single organization or a single member, single director of any of these groups. We'll go into more of the state of UFO research, I guess, and the impact of UFO organizations on the other side. Jerry Clark is our guest. The guest co-host is Kurt Collins. You're in the Paracast. <laughs> We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items. And entails t-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast jumbo tote bag, all sorts of t-shirts and jackets and stuff like that for men and women. We have a Paracast aluminum water bottle. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality, you know, great T-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children, stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Paracast. You go to store.theparacast.com, stop by, and take a shopping tour. If you owe money to the IRS, you need to hear this. The IRS is cracking down on those who owe back taxes. It starts with a devastating letter. And if you don't act immediately, you could find yourself having your wages garnished or have a lien placed on your property. But there's a solution. Tax 10,000 can help. Avoid enforced compliance, where these holds on your income and seizure of your home could become a nightmare that just won't end. Call 800-239-9957 now and speak to one of our experts. 800-239-9957 is the number to link you directly to a tax resolution specialist who will negotiate with the IRS on your behalf. Working through the IRS Fresh Start program, all the forms will be handled for you. All you have to do is make the toll-free call, 800-239-9957. Find out if you qualify and possibly save yourself thousands of dollars, not to mention a lot of headaches. It could be the best call you've made today. That number again, 800-239-9957. The service does not provide tax settlement or legal services. We will refer you to a company that does provide such services. Often the IRS will not agree to any reduction in the amount owed. Not all taxpayers who owe more than $10,000 will qualify for a tax reduction program. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. I'm here to tell you about GCNTelecare.com, a team of board-certified doctors assisting you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 
365 days a year. Within 15 minutes of registration, care your family can afford. Revolutionizing the healthcare industry, virtual consulting, providing diagnosis of non-emergency medical issues by phone or secure video on computer or smart mobile devices. GCNTelecare.com. Virtual care anywhere. It's been said, any society is only three missed meals away from chaos. Those times may be near. Think about it. Our country faces multiple terrorist threats and aggressions from Russia and North Korea. Social unrest and violent marches yet again may lead to looting of stores and city shutdowns. And our crumbling infrastructure leaves our power grid vulnerable to long-term outages from a single cyber attack. When the chaos from any one of these threats arises, the government knows it can't provide during a widespread national emergency. That's why you need your own plan for self-reliance. That's where My Patriot Supply comes in. Get a four-week survival food supply for only $99. That includes breakfast, lunches, and dinners. Order online at preparewithgcn.com. $99 for four weeks of survival food that tastes like homemade cooking and lasts up to 25 years from My Patriot Supply. Get your kits today at preparewithgcn.com. Free shipping is included. Preparewithgcn.com. Frustrated trying to get business capital? Want to take the slow process and rejection out of the equation? GCNloans.com removes the slow, irritating approval process. Instead, get quick, simple funding. Powered by David Allen Capital, 80% of our pre-qualified clients are approved in days. Pre-qualify at GCNloans.com and get your money this week. It's that easy. GCNloans.com. That's GCNloans.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Chris O'Brien is recovering from his cross-country trip from Arizona, Cottonwood, Arizona, to somewhere in the wilds of New York State overlooking the Pennsylvania border on a mountaintop. I start to think of the Davy Crockett song from the 1950s in Disney, Born on a Mountain, but that was Tennessee, so it doesn't work that way. So we're talking about impact of UFO research organizations and also scandals involving UFO organizations. And I kind of like to think is that in terms of these scandals, again, most people don't know about them. And when we find something pretty genuine, like Phil Imbrogno was a complete faker, his claims of having a doctorate from Harvard, not true. His educational claims, not true. Lots of things about his life were fake. And we wonder here then whether anything in the books he wrote or co-wrote with other people were fake. That, I guess, people sort of know, or maybe a few dozen people know. You know, there have been complaints about me because I've had financial difficulties. Of course, anyone else who puts up a donation link somewhere, they don't complain about them. But, you know, the couple of dozen people got whacked out about me. But I think most people don't care and most people don't know. And it's not the business of anybody. But you get the point here. When I was working with AOL, then called America Online as a forum leader, the people who hated AOL, the elitists, shall we say, on the Internet, hated me and attack me wherever they could. You get this small group of people who are worried about it. And of course, we worry here about the follies at MUFON. You know, state directors leaving, all sorts of complaints, whether they've done anything. 
at large, for the public at large, they don't know, they don't care, they have important things to do. Yeah, also I think there's this sort of sense that people who are interested in UFOs, there's a stereotype that they're really unusual and they're whacked out people and anything that goes on among them is really unusual and on the margins of human behavior. When in fact, in my long experience, and yours is long too, Gene, ufologists and UFO people are very ordinary people. There just isn't anything unusual about them or anything that goes on in ufology that doesn't go on in any other human endeavor. Interests might be a little eccentric, a little unordinary. Then the ones that aren't ordinary, well, you're always going to find somebody who's kind of whacked out in, in any enterprise. I've just been struck as I've gotten older and looked back on all the things that I witnessed and experienced and wrote about that it was all pretty normal human behavior, but just an unusual subject. It was sightings that affected public attitudes. The sightings were always primary. People knew about sightings. They rejected them or they were puzzled by them or they thought they meant something, but their opinions were not formed by UFO groups. Well, the thing here is that nobody in the UFO field is really famous enough for people to be concerned about except a small number. You know, if you're really into the nitty gritty and getting into the weeds, you might care who John Ventre is from MUFON and this crazy thing he wrote on Facebook. Any of these issues, 99.999% of those interested in UFOs. And most people who are members of organizations don't know, don't care. It's not part of their lives. Again, if these people were famous, really famous, and they were in the headlines, you care about them. Not because of anything they did, but because they were famous, even only for the sake of being famous. Otherwise, yeah. they just don't care. I think probably in America, there have been only two modestly famous ufologists. One was Donald Kehoe, who was quite visible in the 1950s, and then Alan Hynek for a few years in the yeah the late 70s, the early 80s. I knew Alan Hynek. I remember walking down the street with him one time at the height of his fame, and people would stop him on the street and uh, want to talk to him and ask him questions. But I think that's as famous as any ufologist ever gotten, and I think that only a small number of people even remember Alan, and fewer remember Kehoe. You'd have to be a ufologist with a historical memory to recall Donald Kehoe. Or very old. Sadly. Or both, all those things. Well, he hung out, I think, till his 90s. So speaking of being very old, he died in the 1980s or something like that. So I don't know his condition towards the end of his life, but I did talk to him in the mid-70s. I interviewed him a couple of times, and he seemed to be alert and pretty well. Of course, nowadays, 85 is the new 65. And I met him once at a MUFON conference in 1978, and my impression was that he wasn't that interested in UFOs anymore. He didn't really have too much to say, and when he spoke, it was all really stuff out of his books that he wrote in the 50s. You know, he'd, he'd done what he wanted to do, and he could go on to something else. But I was a little disappointed. I was even then a little in awe that I was talking with Donald Kehoe. But he just ended up, turned out to be an ordinary man. So much for a hero of my childhood. 
some of these uh, people that have, are seeking fame, and I guess the, the faces of ufology today uh, are well, horrendous to us, uh, Eric Von Daniken and, and Giorgio Seleucus. If you ask the average person, those would be the names that they would come up with. And I, I don't do think wanna... that Von Daniken is a ufologist. He never really embraced ufology, and ufology never embraced him. He would always say that he wasn't against UFOs or anything like that. It just wasn't what he was interested in. The line is blurred, I think, in the public side due to the, the popularity of the television show. But but I wanted to ask you something We were talk- while we were talking about fame. So you've worked with a number of researchers who are not so interested in the spotlight. And is, is this historical group still active? And can you tell us something about that? Beginning in the, in the 1990s, there got to be a lot of formal interest in the history of the subject. And my encyclopedia was kind of part of that wave. Some of us got really interested in reconstructing what had happened, not only the cases and the official projects and the organizations, but also just the, the generally the social history. That's what was interesting to me, how these groups came to form, what theories they had, how they interacted with each other, what they believed and didn't believe. That was really the part of my UFO encyclopedia, which was published in a number of volumes in the 1990s, that interested me the most, was just telling these stories. And other people got interested in other aspects. For example, some of the classic cases, poring over the official documents, doing all these things to really reconstruct as clear a picture as we could get of what happened since 1947. And then when the Internet came along and was possible to get access to newspaper archives, there was an explosion of interest in what happened before 1947. You know, not only with the great airship wave at the end of the 19th century, but all these things, these sightings of things in the sky, that some of which sounded like modern UFOs, some of which didn't. But there was just an enormous amount of research, and we have a much better understanding of what was happening before 1947. So we're actively engaged here in an historical perspective of the UFO mystery, and we have a ways to go. More to come with Gene, Kurt, and Jerry. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Water is the single most important thing your body needs, so you want to be sure it's the best for you and your family. Since 2005, thousands have depended on Berkey Purified Water. The Berkey Guy provides the lowest priced filtration systems in every size. For incredibly delicious water now and in an emergency, get to GoBerkey.com or call 877-886-3653. 877-886-3653. GoBerkey.com. You haven't experienced yogurt until you've tried a Mossy, embodying health and flavor in a true whole milk, green-fed dairy beverage. Every sip pays homage to our old-world cows and the ancient culturing methods their milk benefits from. With over 30 probiotics, a Mossy's undeniably nutritious, refined, cultured sensation bolsters your health and awakens your passion for dairy. A Mossy's so good, and you need to try it. Contact your Longevity distributor or call 877-878-4203 or go to GCNteam.com. Hello, my name is Marjorie Wildcraft. 
I'm the founder of The Grow Network, which is an online community of people who produce their own food and medicine. We are really into backyard self-reliance. If you want this lifestyle, I suggest your first step be to learn some basic home medicine. Just the other day, my 18-year-old son came to me and said, Mama, I got a sore throat. Can you fix me up? And I said, Sure, Ryan. And in about 24 hours, he was better. The best home medicine for you to start out with is garlic. It's an amazing natural antibiotic, and I can show you how to use garlic to handle ear infections, sore throats, colds, and flus. As a way for you to get to know a little bit more about me and the Grow Network, I've written up an easy introduction on how to use garlic. It's at gcnwellness.com. Now, the station manager told me that I needed to say the URL at least twice, even though it feels kind of weird. But if you're interested in backyard self-reliance, you are one of us. Go to www.gcnwellness.com and let's connect up. Message and data rates may apply. You don't follow the herd. You blaze your own trail. And you're as adventurous in the kitchen as you are in life. Whether it's paddleboard yoga or Peruvian steak, you're the first to try new things. So are we. We're Green Chef, the first USDA-certified organic meal kit delivery service. We offer delicious meal plans for seven different lifestyles. Paleo, gluten-free, keto, vegetarian, vegan, carnivore, and omnivore. Want to be the first of your friends to try Green Chef? Discover our exclusive introductory deal by texting the keyword FUN66 to 543543. We believe that cooking, just like life, should be all about experience and flavor. And by exploring dinner options with Green Chef, you'll try new recipes, techniques, and ingredients for bold, new restaurant-level flavors. It's like enjoying a new cooking class, but in your own home. To experience this culinary adventure, text now and discover our exclusive introductory deal. Text FUN66 to 543543. That's F-U-N-66 to 543543. Here's a special message for those of you who owe the IRS at least 10000 or more in back taxes. The IRS has special programs in place that could eliminate or reduce your tax debt by thousands of dollars. Call the Federal Tax Management Helpline that has been set up for you, 800-503-8625. Stop the wage garnishments, levies, and tax liens now. Once you've qualified and enrolled, the IRS will stop all the collection activities against you. These unique programs have been allocated to help the economy and significantly reduce reduce or eliminate your tax burden. The IRS is currently accepting reduced settlements and other favorable programs. You may qualify for substantial savings, so get the help you need. If you owe more than 10000 in taxes, call for free information and to see if you qualify. Take down the number now for the Federal Tax Management Hotline, 800-503-8625. That's 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625. Hi, this is James Fox from Chasing UFOs. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. So we continue here, but first, before we go on, we have a second radio show called After the Paracast, which is just what it implies, or more of the Paracast, because sometimes that's what it is, a continuation of the regular show. And it's only available if you subscribe to the Paracast Plus. Go to plus.theparacast.com for more information, plus.theparacast.com. You also get a version of this show with better quality audio free of the network ads. So people on YouTube who say, ads, 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 he has an ad every minute. That's one person, some really wacky person on YouTube. Why does he have one ad every minute? Of course, he doesn't. The actual duration of the show between ads is from 8 minutes and 50 seconds to 10 minutes and 40 seconds, because I have my log here. 
and it confirms what I'm saying is true. Plus, that's Paracast.com. And we're talking here about the historical perspective of UFOs. And that's a lot of what Jacques Vallée has been doing these years, focusing on historic events as opposed to current stuff. Or maybe current stuff disgusts him because it never seems to go anywhere. Well, you get that feeling sometimes. I, I sort of think that we know by now, if we know nothing else, what UFOs do and what they don't do. So we're not waiting, for example, for a landing on the White House lawn, which we actually kind of were back in the early days. And there was no reason not to be waiting for that because we didn't know we didn't know what was possible. We thought that might be possible. Yeah, but what would happen is we expected Klaatu to come out of a flying saucer because that is the image of landing in a park near the White House and he comes out wearing his silvery uniform. Yeah, I think that Daisy Earth still either played on that idea or encouraged it. But we do know what UFOs do and what they don't do. There's nothing surprising. Sightings get kind of boring after a while and I think that's true of almost any anomalies. They have a limited repertoire. And you realize at some point that, okay, you're going to get so much out of it and you're not going to get other stuff that you're looking for out of it. It's just going to, in its own way, just repeat itself. And at a certain point, if you're, you know, if you can run out of patience or if you're intelligent and curious, you begin thinking in terms not of a whole bunch of random strange stories, but you look for patterns and you try to create hypotheses out of what you can demonstrate to some reasonable degree is going on. And that's kind of where I've gone over the years. Yeah, just the usual sightings aren't terribly interesting to me because I've read some version of them or heard some version of them all before and many times before. But what does it mean? How does this work? Even if you can't explain it, you can at least figure out to some extent how it works. And once you've discern how it works, and you can start making hypotheses about the phenomenon. I'm talking about kind of the arc of my own intellectual engagement with ufology and, and, and anomalies generally. Well, the thing here is, once you have a few sightings, you pretty much know a good deal about what's going on. And if you take a copy of the book, Flying Saucers from Outer Space, from Major Donald Kehoe, add to that something about abductions, for example. And you basically have the entire field summarized. And most of the rest of the books you read are just compendiums of sightings. In fact, going back to Jim Mosley, he would always write summaries of sightings, and I did too when I worked for the magazine, from newspapers. We just rewrite them and credit the newspaper as a source. And then... He would tell me every so often, you know, I'm really sick and tired of these sightings. I'm just doing it because our readers want to read about it. He basically had enough in the 60s because most of what is still going on had already occurred. I think that um, there was some shift in the way people experienced UFOs beginning in the 1960s. In the 1960s, there were these stranger and stranger stories. We Alan Heineck coined the phrase high strangeness. And there may be just a fundamental difference between, say, your landing trace case, your radar visual, and the, the 
sorts of cases that involve just really extraordinary claims that are not verifiable, even if you have a witness who is sane and sincere and probably experienced something such as he explained. But I began to wonder at a certain point whether, you know, the abduction phenomenon was even related except by appearances to the, you know, the daylight disk phenomenon. The daylight disk phenomenon is where the extraterrestrial hypothesis begins because daylight disks are, you know, logically thought to be extraterrestrial spaceships. And they show up on radar. They give evidence of some kind of advanced technology. All these things you would expect of a technology-based visiting alien intelligence. But what do you do with men in black and, and abductions and things like this? Just these other, the otherworldly journeys, all these things that get wilder and crazier and crazier as time goes on, and yet yield no evidence comparable to radar visual evidence or the sort of hardcore evidence that you can get out of close encounters of the second kind at radar visuals. You know, is something fundamentally different going on? And that is one of the conclusions I eventually arrived at. I was close to Bud Hopkins, who was a good friend of mine. I loved the guy. But eventually, we just came to see the abduction phenomenon very differently. Bud believed that it was a logical extension of the extraterrestrial hypothesis and that, in fact, it was revealing why the aliens had come to visit the Earth to start with. And I did not draw that conclusion at all. Eventually, I just completely distanced myself from it. Well, the thing I, I see with that is if there's a logical reason for them to abduct Earthlings, how many times do you have to do it before you've accomplished that task? If it's a genetic thing, you don't need to do invasive things to take a DNA sample. And certainly exactly. some civilization with amazing medical technology could probably do everything on a few samples of the local populace and not even touch them. Yeah, that's exactly right. At, at, at a certain point, it just doesn't make sense. And, um, you know, these seem to be real experiences. People are... They're experienced vividly. They're not just like dreams. They're really extraordinary, terrifying experiences. But they're probably not what they seem to be. They may be related to, you know, uh, a much older tradition of supernatural kidnappings where people are taken by otherworldly entities of various identities, usually identities that make sense and context of cultural expectation and belief, and subjected to frightening indignities of various kinds. I think that these things are, are real, they're extraordinary, they're culture-bound, and um, they take on the coloration of a society's idea of what a supernatural kidnapping, an otherworldly kidnapping, would be like. Just playing out with UFO coloration this time. Well, the thing you mentioned here, of course, is the interaction with some kind of outside force. Now, when we had David Halperin on the Paracast a couple of weeks back, and for the first half of the show, we had Eric Von Daniken. And I'll ask you about ancient astronauts, though I get the sense here that 
those stories may be based on similar experiences. But in any case, he said Barney Hill was recalling the nightmare, kind of a racial memory, the nightmare of the African-American slave experience, being kidnapped in Africa, brought here by these evil people who were using them as human cargo. And that was something that he was recalling, and maybe he was recalling what his parents had told him or his grandparents about well, their history. Let's get let's get to that in a moment. We've got Jerome Clark, Kurt Collins, Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. This is Dan Pilla. Do you owe the IRS money you can't pay? Are tax debts crippling you? I've defended people from the IRS for over 30 years. I've helped thousands and I can help you too. I wrote the book on IRS settlement and I'm telling you, there's no such thing as a hopeless case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX to finally get free of IRS debt. With the IRS's new programs, there's never been a better time to solve your problem. Call 800-34-NO-TAX. That's 800-34-NO-TAX or my website, danpilla.com. Hunters, anglers, campers, and survivalists. Get back to nature. Expand your horizons with the highest quality, most versatile, unique slingshots and slingbows on the market at slingbow.com. Slingbow products are compact and models start from just $17.98. They're perfect for your bug out bag or storing in your vehicle. Give yourself and your loved ones the excitement and tradition of slingbow. A new frontier in archery and truly modern twist on this primitive survival tool. Feel the thrill only at slingbow.com. Anytime, any place, anywhere, radio remains the most intimate of all forms of media. At home, at work, in the car, on smartphones. Over 90% of consumers still listen to radio every week. That makes choosing radio as a place to advertise your business one of the best decisions you can make. Email advertise at GCNlive.com and partner up with an experienced GCN representative. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Easy, affordable, effective. 
Have you checked your Google search results lately? Search results are usually the first impression that people form of you or your business. So make sure that they create a positive impression with ReputationDefender.com. What the Internet says about you can have a big impact on your life and your livelihood, even if it's not true. Fortunately, you can now control how you look online and in online search results with ReputationDefender.com. Call 800-831-0771 now. That's 800-831-0771 for your free reputation analysis. If you have negative material from an ex-employee, upset patient, or former client, newspaper, article, legal issue, social media, or other source showing up in your search results, you can combat it with ReputationDefender.com. Our dedicated experts in patented technology can help make your online search results look their best. Call 800-831-0771 to learn more. 800-831-0771. That's 800-831-0771. Or visit ReputationDefender.com. Fully cooked, ready-to-eat bacon. I'm talking thick, meaty, center-cut, presidential bacon. Savory and delicious. I buy some, I use some, I store some. Awesome. No refrigeration needed with a 10-year shelf life. NASA pack technology. Bacon. Fully cooked, fully hydrated, ready-to-eat right from the pack bacon. Or warm and served. Life-saving, ready-to-eat bacon. 10-year shelf life bacon. Ships free at FullyCookedBacon.com. FullyCookedBacon.com. Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Let's continue with what I said about David Halperin and his perceptions about Barney Hill. What do you think, Jerry? Yeah, I don't buy it. I mean, I mean no disrespect to David, who is a wonderful guy and a lifelong friend. And I, I like David, and I, he's a very smart guy. But this is really a simplistic and reductionist explanation. These racial dramas do not play out in the very numerous abduction narratives that we have, in which the um, Hill experience is very typical. There's nothing extraordinary about the Hill case, except that it was the first one that became widely known. Even the missing time aspect of it goes back into the 18th and 19th century in supernatural kidnap stories where no one was imagining aliens or anything like that. I think there's a tendency among academic skeptics, and that would describe David, to make extraordinary experiences as small as we are that they have to be contained within existing knowledge or we can't talk about them. And I think that one thing we know about these experiences, they are not contained within existing knowledge. I think we're right to be skeptical about their content, but I don't think we're right to be skeptical about their extraordinary nature, that we're dealing with something that is beyond current knowledge and, and, and may be way beyond current knowledge. But it isn't reducible to some kind of reductionist formula. I'm just surprised that David would suggest that. That just that, that to me is not, is kind of a non-starter as an explanation. The, the Hills had a very typical, what we came to know as a typical abduction experience, and there was nothing unusual about it except for the social fact that it was an interracial couple, which 
I, from everything I can see, since most couples who undergo abduction experiences aren't interracial, most of the stories we have are from white people, actually. That may just be an artifact of reporting. I just don't think that you can reduce it to to something like that. I, it just it seems puzzling to me that David would think that he had somehow solved this. That kind of, that just seems to me like kind of inspired guesswork. You mentioned a, a number of things as the conversation went along that they were each worthy of, of closer examination. And one, one thing I wanted to mention was the uh, you mentioned uh, the, the artifact reporting. And you, you were talking about daylight disks earlier. And I think it's worth mentioning that the fact that these weren't lights in the sky. This was something seen in, in the air during daylight by a, a pilot who was experienced and reputable. You know, that was what made the, the flying saucer uh, sightings newsworthy to begin with, and other pilots saw them. So this was different than some of the later sightings that sort of capitalized on it, where they saw a saucer. And the, the other thing I wanted to bring up that you had mentioned was the the supernatural aspect. And I was I wanted to ask you if some of these other ideas, whether they're abductions or crop circles or, or even there were pitted windshields in the 50s that the people were connecting with with flying saucers. Well, I guess I'm asking based on my own bias here. I, I think these other elements being brought in with UFOs sort of diminish each of them, even if they are individually worthy of study. I think they suffer by being lumped together. I agree with you. Yes, I think that's true. I think that... Um in the 1960s, late 1950s, 1960s, NICAP was extremely conservative about what it accepted as UFO data, and it got no end of criticism for that. And um, I'm sure that the young Jerome Clark was just as vocal as anybody about that. But in retrospect, I begin to understand NICAP's point of view. It was always claimed that NICAP was concerned about respectability more than anything else. Well, certainly NICAP was concerned about respectability. It wanted to be heard, and it wanted influential people to hear it so that influential people with power could generate real UFO investigation and financing for it. But I think that NICAP was right to insist that the real evidence was in the radar visual cases, the multi-witness cases, the physical trace cases, those kinds of things that suggested, you know, a technology, something that was ultimately verifiable, evidence from which you could learn. You could take it into a laboratory. You could study it scientifically. That was the real data. If you were talking about the possibility that the Earth was under visitation from another civilization, that's where the evidence was. And all the other stuff was just noise. In, you can criticize NICAP in individual cases and so on. But I think that the general point was right. That when you study UFO data, you have, first of all have to define what the data are. Do you think that anything that somebody says that has something like a flying saucer in it is a UFO case, is UFO data? If you look at this critically, I think that presumption begins to break down. And we really are dealing with different things that we've just thrown together as UFO data. I think the UFO data probably are exactly what they first were thought to be. 
the hard evidence cases of, by pilots and people like that, scientists, astronomers. And um, that's what, where you look if you're looking for proof of a technical anomaly. But you can collect as many abduction stories or man in black stories or otherworldly journeys as you want, and all you're going to get are a bunch of stories. Most of these stories will be by people who appear to be sincere and sane, but they won't get you anywhere. And the stories don't even really cohere in the way you would expect them to do if they were an objective phenomenon. So maybe NICAP had a point after all. There was an article in Saucer News, by the way, which was roughly titled, How Close Will Major Kehoe Allow a UFO to Get? (laughs) And that kind of follows what you just said, which is, that they tended to downplay anything related to a contact, and certainly it took them a while to even get into coverage of Betty and Barney Hill. So that was one of the issues. But I wanted to shoot back to a couple of other subjects before we get to 1897 and some new material you've written for 40 and Times. Since we had Eric Von Daniken on a couple of weeks ago on the Paracast for the first time, although we've discussed his main topic before, ancient aliens. What's your perception of that? Are they telling of experiences, contact-related experiences, in the terms of ancient man that are similar to episodes of possible contact with aliens now? Not in the way that Von Donneken writes about it. You know, I think that people have always had extraordinary experiences. I mean, that's just part of being human. And And any place you look in human history, whatever tribe or group or nation or whatever, they've had what we generally call anomalous or supernatural experiences. And uh, I think that it's just wise not to... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Not to just try to cram them all into a box because they're not going to fit into one box. I think David Halpern, in his discussion, because he obviously is a biblical scholar and he was dissecting a lot of what Fontanikin said, is that he was reaching. Then obviously some of those older texts can have different meanings depending on the translation you read or whether you try to attach certain terminology to modern terminology. So in this case... He was reaching, and he came up with a theory that maybe he thought was original, but of course it was fairly old old news in the UFO field. Well, David is one of the people who are qualified to judge what these narratives are about. I mean, there's a real sophisticated study of the ancient world, and it is not represented in Von Donneken's work. And if you want to know about the ancient world, what was going on there, and what people believed, and how they saw the world, it's scholars like David Halpern you want to turn to. Not Von Donneken, who's just kind of a, a hobbyist. I call these people barstool ranters, although I think that Von Donneken, in my experience, is not a ranter. He's a soft-spoken, pleasant man. But nonetheless, it's kind of making it up as you go along. And kind of at the end of the segment, he was admitting, well, this is my interpretation of it, and he really had nothing more to offer than that. Again, it goes back to that. This is how I look at it, and fine. But as you say, he's a gentleman, very nice guy, and I enjoy the session. 
We've got more to come with Jerome Clark and Kurt Collins. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Hear that? That's the sound of a house being trashed while a gang of thieves ransack the place. And what they don't steal will be destroyed. This year, resolve not to be the next victim of a break-in. Go to faketv.com and discover a device that creates the illusion someone inside is watching TV, even when you're miles away. Security is a mindset, and fake TV should be part of your security solution. Be vigilant, but not fearful. Faketv.com. It's a no-brainer. A Big Berkey water filter is the one you need, period. You need a water filter that removes chlorine, fluoride, pharmaceuticals, BPA, and other endocrine disruptors, pesticides, bacteria, viruses, and much more, right? And does it all at only two cents per gallon. Get the original and most trusted name in gravity water filtration, Big Berkey. And now GCN listeners receive 5% off ceramic filter systems using code GCN. Call or click 1-877-99-BERKEY or BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com. That's 1-877-99-BERKEY. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. All right, ancient aliens, let's set that aside. Let's set aside abductions. When we think of UFO waves, we have the modern UFO era beginning in 1947, plus things like food fighters and ghost rockets in the 40s. And we have other cases through the years, but the 1897 airships seem to have like a special status. And when I read about them, I'm thinking of maybe a Jules Verne novel or H.G. Wells, the very earliest science fiction. So tell us about 1897 and this new article you wrote. Well, the mystery airships were actually an international phenomenon that um, began with sporadic sightings perhaps as far back as the 1860s. And um, this is one of the things we know a lot more about now than we did before the Internet age. And uh, it continued at least into the through the 19-teens. 
But the epicenter of the American part of the wave, of course, began in California in November 1896 and kind of petered out by um, the later part of May 1897, although sporadic sightings continued throughout the year and into later years, as we now know. But everybody who knows the history of UFOs knows about the 1897 wave, where people were reporting seeing things that look like airships or dirigibles, which are lighter than air controlled vehicles, like, you know, that you can, you could get into and have some control over, even though it was lighter than air. And it was a way to negotiate your way through the sky without being entirely driven by the vagaries of wind. But there were no dirigibles in the United States in 1897. Now, dirigibles began flying in the late 18th century in France and Germany. But in fact, the Wright brothers invented heavier-than-air flight in December 1903, but it was only after heavier-than-air vehicles were flying in the United States that dirigibles flew in the United States. So dirigibles were actually came late to America, very late. That historical background is necessary before you start talking about what was going on. Nonetheless, there were these sightings of these fantastic dirigible-like objects. They were called airships. People claimed to see them flying overhead. In some cases, people claimed they had landed and they had interacted with the occupants. And mostly they talked about occupant crews that described themselves as Americans, explained who they were and when they were going to announce their invention to the world, when they were going to take it to the patent office. And then there are other stories that are very hard to believe and seem more like jokes that claim the airships were piloted by Martians. To figure out what was going on, you have to work your way through the 1897 American press, which was not the modern American press. It was just like a free-for-all. It was like everyone publishing the National Enquirer. Yeah, and there were jokes, like jokes that if you were living in some village in Kansas, say, and you read a local account of an airship and its occupants, if you read it now, you wouldn't get the jokes. But it was sometimes like a, you know just a parody of, of, of local characters. And if you knew the characters, the, the story is really funny. So you have to work your way through a lot of this stuff. And I got interested actively in investigating 1897 airships in the 1960s. So I spent, I've always been intrigued by them. I spent decades trying to figure out what was going on. It be- began to unravel to me when I realized that not all of the stories about landings and American crews were inventions that some of these could very well have been people's real experiences, even if there were no American-flown airships in 1897. Nonetheless, these experiences were vividly perceived by honest people. To investigate that possibility, I was going over the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of old clippings that have been recovered describing the airship wave. And there was one story that struck me. It was on April 19, 1897, about 11 p.m., Beaumont, Texas. This 
guy named Lagon and his son Charlie were returning home late in the evening to their ranch, which was just outside the city of Beaumont, which is in East Texas. And they saw some lights in a field some distance away, and there, there were not supposed to be any lights there, so they went to investigate. They discovered this giant airship with four big wings on the ground. And um, Mr. Lagon, J.R. Lagon, engaged this crew in conversation. And um, the crew members, led by a man named Wilson, no first name, said they needed water. So he invited them into the house to collect water for their, to fly, help fly their airship. And so they were in the house for a while, and there was this conversation that went on, and Wilson told where they were from, that they developed these ships in the Midwest, and they were going to announce their invention in due, due course. Then they went back in the ship, and apparently at some point they invited Lagon into the ship to look at what the interior looked like. So this is a, just an interesting story, but there's no verification for it. But then I discovered a story that was published in the New Orleans paper about a week or two later. It was about a week later, where Rabbi Levy of Beaumont said that recently, when an airship had landed near Beaumont, he had sped to the scene and been in the house with the occupants, and he talked with them. And he said he was so rattled by the experience that he couldn't re even remember exactly what they talked about. But he'd seen the airship, he had talked with his crew. There's no mention of J.R. Lagon, but there was only one airship landing that happened in Beaumont, Texas, late that evening. And that had to be the same experience that J.R. Lagon was going on, was, was experiencing. So I went to, to investigate Rabbi Levy's background. And he was an extraordinarily educated, highly regarded figure in Beaumont. And he was educated in Europe. He was originally, he grew up in France, went to the best universities, came to the United States to serve as a rabbi in the 1870s, made a very good reputation for himself. Also, he said, he told the New Orleans reporter that he was in town to attend his, his niece's wedding. And it turned out, I learned, that he did indeed have a New Orleans connection, that he had served as a rabbi in New Orleans, um, among other cities in the South that he had served before he came to Beaumont. So anyway, there was no question that this was about as reliable a witness as you could ask for. I also learned that J.R. Lagan never got over his experience, and he actually constructed a model airship based upon the one that he had entered and observed closely. And he even presented it in a, in a community parade the following July. And um, this guy, nobody involved in this looks like a hoaxer or a nut. And it turned out that this was one of several related, apparently related sightings and landings that had occurred in western Louisiana and, and Texas within a few days of each other in April, in the month of April, 1897. 
So I put this all together in this article, which appears in the January issue of Fortean Times, along with my interpretation of what this was about. We're going to have more, and we're going to talk about that article entitled Mr. Wilson and the Aeronauts of 1897. It almost sounds like a movie title. Jerome Clark, Curtis Collins. You're in the Paracast. Neighbors, we've made such a deal with HelloFresh, and it means that everyone listening to this show can receive $30 off your first week of deliveries when you go to HelloFresh.com and use the offer code PARACAST30. You know, with HelloFresh, you can choose the delivery day that works best for you. They've got a wide variety of chef-curated recipes that change weekly. And can you imagine me cooking Japanese panko chicken? It makes me feel like I'm a chef. It means also that you could actually get your meal cooked in 30 minutes. For busy people, this is perfect. The simple recipes include step-by-step instructions so even I can figure it out. Go to HelloFresh.com, use the offer code PARACAST30 to get $30 off your first week of deliveries. HelloFresh.com. Does the current world crisis in North Korea or our domestic crisis right here in America concern you? Well, I know it concerns me. My friends over at Legacy Food Storage have solutions in the event there's the inevitable. What's the inevitable? Civil unrest, a run on your local grocery store. And here's my question to you. If this happens, how do you feed your children? How do you feed your grandchildren? Legacy Food Storage has the solutions. In fact, they can help you implement a simple plan to take care of your needs in the event of the inevitable. By calling them right now, I have authorized them to give you a special 20% discount at checkout by simply using GCN. Call 888-543-7345 or visit them at LegacyFoodStorage.com. That's 888-543-7345 or visiting them at LegacyFoodStorage.com. Make sure you use GCN at checkout for an incredible 20% discount. Don't be a victim. Take control of your life now. Looking for that edge during those intimate moments? We see many ads for enhancement, but the side effects include death. At GCN Team, we should change the Healthy Body Brain and Heart Pack to the Healthy Libido Pack. The brain and heart are not the only organs that require a healthy vascular system. For proper blood flow at the right moment, go to GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203. That's 877-878-4203. That's 877-878-4203. Warning! If you're drowning in debt you can't afford, do not let the credit card companies trick you into thinking that you have to pay it all back, because you don't. What the credit card companies don't want you to know is that there's actually a way to get debt-free without paying off your entire debt or going bankrupt. If you have $5,000 or more in credit card debt, you now have the right to let us settle that debt for a fraction of what you owe. For free information, call Credit Associates now. 1-800-959-5759. We'll even show you how much money you could save. If you can't afford to pay off all your debt, do not let the credit card companies trick you into thinking that you have to. Call Credit Associates now for free information on how to get debt-free faster than you ever thought possible without debt consolidation or bankruptcy. 
We depend on your success and offer a guarantee, so there's no risk. For free information, call now. 1-800-959-5759. That's 1-800-959-5759. 1-800-959-5759. One out of four people listening to my voice right now could die from heart disease. This could be your last year, and you don't even know it because you don't know the early warning signs. If you think you're safe because your cholesterol levels are normal, think again, because studies show that 75% of heart attack patients also had normal cholesterol levels. Let me introduce you to Strauss Heart Drops, a world-famous heart and brain formula made in Canada. It's time-tested and will give you clinical results in 90 days or your money back. Learn more at signsofheartdisease.com. They are shipping free this month. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Jerome Clark, Curtis Collins, our guest co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. We continue with this episode. And I likened the title. I guess this was the title the editor of 40 and Times made for your article, Jerry. That is, it sounded like a movie title. Or like a like a Jules Verne story, actually. That's, that's why I compare it that way, yes. When I saw that title, I had another title, which I preferred. But when I saw that title, I thought, you know, that's not a bad title. <laughs> and I thought of those Jules Verne stories about Aeronauts that I read when I was a kid and were really thrilling. I think we're obviously thinking the same way about 1897. So let's go on with the story. Well, there were other stories. One involved a Sheriff Baylor at Uvalde, Texas, which I think was more than 300 miles away from Beaumont, by my counting. And he claimed that an airship had landed late at night in his, as I recall, in his alley. And he had gone and he talked with the crew. And the crew was led again by a man named Wilson, who said that um, he had known a local lawman who was now a customs agent along the Texas-Mexico border, and that he had known this guy in, um, in Fort Worth 20 years earlier, and that he should greet this customs agent next time he saw him. And so Sheriff Baylor said he would, and, and the guy gets in the ship and flies away, and then the newspaper, the Houston paper, runs a story that they had found the they had talked with the customs agent. He said, yes, he said, I did know a man named Wilson in Fort Worth in the 1870s, and he was working on some kind of aerial device, which he claimed would, would startle the nation. And so he said he must have succeeded in doing that. That seemed really impressive at first reading. And there were other cases of people who saw airships land on their property or near it, and they talked with the crews. And they, and either Wilson was mentioned by name or from the description of the crew and the interaction with the principal guy, the head of the crew, the implication is that this was a guy named Wilson. And so you put it together, and it looks really interesting, like you've got a chain of evidence here. But when you look at it more closely and start digging deeper and deeper, as I did a few years ago, you find that one of the cases, 
at least one of the cases, is a confessed hoax. And that's Sheriff Baylor's story. And Sheriff Baylor actually confessed to a small-town Texas paper a couple of weeks later, said, I made up. Everybody's bugging me about this, but it never happened. It made up as a joke. So here's the story in the, in the, in the seeming chain of evidence that doesn't stand up. But these other cases, for one reason or another, they, st- they do look persuasive. It looks as if most of these claims were sincerely related, and, and a couple of them weren't. And significantly, perhaps, the two most suspect stories are ones told by law enforcement officers who may have been connected with, they, these guys may have known each other and just made up these stories to abuse themselves. But the other witnesses are people who you know, seem like ordinary people who tell this story for no obvious reason and who seem genuinely perplexed about what happened. So eventually I thought, I've got to put this together in a way that makes sense, and that's what the article was about was about how hoaxes could be part of a tapestry of, a, of genuine experience anomalies. I wanted to ask you a question about, about the type of, you know, obviously these, these uh, well, we'll call them close encounters. Uh, that's that's uh, self-explanatory, but there was a range of other sightings, and I was just wondering if some of these, were, there were probably some Venus sightings, and I know that there was at least one case where a newspaper investigating, they launched a, a what we would now call a, a sky lantern, a fire balloon, to see if that generated the same kind of kind of things. Were, were some of these uh, daylight sightings or night, or can you kind of characterize a spectrum of experiences? The, uh, the uh, ledge encounters with Wilson were all, at night, and they were at close range. In in most of the cases, the witnesses claimed to have been taken aboard the airship and given a tour. And so, this is different from seeing a you know a lantern floating in the sky or watching Venus. These were these either happened or they didn't, or as I suspect. They, they neither happened or didn't happen. They occurred in some kind of uh, lumen. What am I looking, trying to say? Some kind of intermediate state. That, that these were vivid kinds of visionary experiences that were created out of the, the idea of airships, including hoaxes about airships. That, that the hoaxes and the authentic encounters authentic used in a very broad sense, really came out of the same place. That that some of the stories were imaginary and were purely imaginary, but others which used much of the same imagery were actually experienced. They were experienced as real. That there that these that that these phenomena like I believe most high strangeness phenomena come out of some state that is is not a binary state. It's not a state between real and unreal. It partakes of both of them. Sometimes more one than the other. But it explains why we can't prove 
that extraordinary phenomena occur other than as experiences in most cases. That people have these vivid, vivid experiences which naturally they understand to be taking place in consensus reality. But in fact, they're, they're taken in some other state of, of perception. It's like where the ordinary boundaries break down. And at the end, they become what I call experience anomalies as opposed to an event anomaly. An event anomaly is something that you can potentially prove happened in the world. The experience anomaly is far stranger and more fantastic, and you could never prove that it happened in the world. You can prove that people experienced it as they described it, but just the fact that they experienced it doesn't tell you what it was. It's sort of the difference between the unexplained. The unexplained are event anomalies, which are potentially explainable. And experience anomalies are inexplicable. They're just outside all boundaries that we understand and, and you know, maneuver our way through the world inside. Long and shorter than the image of the dirigible type craft. That reflects the culture of the time just if, as a flying saucer does now. we got more to come with Jerome Clark and Curtis Collins and listen to questions. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Water is the single most important thing your body needs, so you want to be sure it's the best for you and your family. Since 2005, thousands have depended on Berkey Purified Water. The Berkey Guy provides the lowest priced filtration systems in every size. For incredibly delicious water now and in an emergency, get to GoBerkey.com or call 877-886-3653. 877-886-3653. GoBerkey.com. Hunters, anglers, campers, and survivalists. Get back to nature. Expand your horizons with the highest quality, most versatile, unique slingshots and slingbows on the market at slingbow.com. Slingbow products are compact and models start from just $17.98. They're perfect for your bug out bag or storing in your vehicle. Give yourself and your loved ones the excitement and tradition of slingbow. A new frontier in archery and truly modern twist on this primitive survival tool. Feel the thrill only at slingbow.com. Here's a special message for those of you who owe the IRS at least 10000 or more in back taxes. The IRS has special programs in place that could eliminate or reduce your tax debt by thousands of dollars. Call the Federal Tax Management Helpline that has been set up for you, 800-503-8625. Stop the wage garnishments, levies, and tax liens now. Once you've qualified and enrolled, the IRS will stop all the collection activities against you. These unique programs have been allocated to help the economy and significantly reduce reduce or eliminate your tax burden. The IRS is currently accepting reduced settlements and other favorable programs. You may qualify for substantial savings, so get the help you need. If you owe more than 10000 in taxes, call for free information and to see if you qualify. Take down the number now for the Federal Tax Management Hotline, 800-503-8625. That's 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625. Hello. My name is Don Wiskin from HeartDrop.com, the distributors of Extendivite, the number one heart drop that people have been raving about for years. 
Every February, for the last 16 years, HeartDrop.com has had a Heart Month sale to help you stay heart healthy. For only $115 plus shipping and handling, you can get a four-month supply of Extendivite in either liquid or capsule form to help you get started on your path to better health. Now is the time to stock up. Order what you need. Stay heart healthy all year with the number one heart drop, Extendivite. To order your Extendivite, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit our website, heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extendivite. Are you happy washing your hands with harsh chemicals? Are you happy doing laundry with detergents? Are you happy paying high prices? Find your happiness with Pure Soap. These all-natural, earth-friendly Pure Soaps are the very best you've ever used. Buy in bulk. Get a 12, 36, or 48-month supply. Or get items individually and still save big. You're getting soap products twice as good as what you're using now. Earth-friendly and natural soaps. Your family deserves the best. Happiness is 5starsoap.com. Why not put your money up the drain for a change? See them at 5starsoap.com or call 1-800-340-7091 for a catalog. Calben Soap Company can save you thousands of dollars and give you good old-fashioned real soaps that are triple concentrated. Soaps made from vegetable and coconut oils. See their full selection of soaps at 5starsoap.com. That's F-I-V-E starsoap.com. Or call 1-800-340-7091 for a catalog. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. So with Jerry Clark, as I said, we're talking here about the experience as opposed to the event anomaly. And therefore, the 1897 airship is because that kind of craft was part of the culture then as a flying saucer or spaceship type device would be today. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. You could even see the airship phenomenon as really not at all related to the UFO phenomenon as defined by the hard evidence cases. That you can just see it as some kind of you know, extraordinary series of events where all the ordinary boundaries break down. And one thing the ufologists did and it's understandable, it's not a major intellectual crime. But when they got hold of this, and they knew about the 1897 airships, because Ford wrote about them. They appeared in Ford's book, uh, New Lands, which was published in 1923. But they knew about, the early ufologists knew about airships, and so there were these strange objects in the sky, so they naturally assumed this was these were early UFOs. And Donald Kehoe wrote about them in The Flying Saucers Are Real from 1950, and he basically rewrote the reports so that they sound like modern UFOs. But they weren't modern UFOs. They were very clearly described as dirigibles. And again, I want to emphasize that this is, was an international phenomenon. There were co- comparable waves that happened in various times in England, South Africa, Australia, you know, just about anywhere. Everybody in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century, was experiencing something like airships. 
but they, nobody was describing them as looking like saucers or cigar-shaped objects or familiar forms from the UFO era. This was like something really distinct. Now, you can go back into history, and you can find modern-sounding UFO reports from the 19th century, the 18th century, the 17th century. There are such reports which suggest that there may be a UFO phenomenon, possibly indicative of alien visitation, which is separate from these experience anomaly phenomena. But the, the airships of America and Canada and everywhere else were not UFOs in the modern sense at all. There was a certain amount of speculation that these were Martian visitors, but that was because in the latter 19th century there was a great deal of speculation, even in the sober scientific press, about the existence of Martians. And there were attempts to contact Martians, you know, through, you know, shining bright lights and doing things like that. And there was speculation that Martians might have visited the Earth, quite apart from airship sightings. But that strain of speculation, at some point, got sucked into the airship phenomenon, but it was only a minor part of it. The major belief, the major experience, the experiential part of the airship phenomenon was about secret inventors. I read that uh, Thomas Edison was accused of building an airship, and he denied it. Do you, do you remember anything about that? Yeah, not only did he deny it, he claimed that airships would never amount to anything. They would be nothing but toys. So, <laughs> he was right about the first part and wrong about the second part. There was all kinds of speculation about who the inventor might be. And there were even people who claimed that they were the inventor or they knew the inventor, but they were, I think, just making that up. So our best-known Martian story was the Aurora crash, and there's a lot of legends about that. And Well, not everyone has put it to rest. Do you think there's anything about that, that that's worthy of study? Well, it was typical of the, of the newspaper hoaxes of the period, um, and another one, one that I debunked myself back in the mid-1970s, the Alex Hamilton, you know, calf napping by aliens in an airship where they supposedly lassoed a calf. And, and later they found the, the butchered remains in a field with no footprints around it. You know, that story looked really impressive, but it was just a practical joke by some of the prominent citizens of a small town in Kansas in April 1897. The Aurora story is interesting because it involves a Martian, it involves a crash of a spaceship. You know, these are things that we've heard about a lot since subsequently, but it was just a joke. I remember reading about one other hoax, and my, my memory of it to them, but you, you, I'm sure you probably remember it. It was where debris was found that, of a supposedly a crashed airship. I'm not giving you much to go on, but as I remember yeah, it, that's they, they pushed it. in Kansas in Nebraska. Okay. It was just a made-up story. The one that, that I was thinking of it may be the same thing. They had pushed debris down a hill and claimed it was pieces of the ship. And this this oh, may be yeah. another one. That was California in uh, late 1896. Yeah, there were hoaxes. I mean, people sometimes would build a structure and pass it off as, a, as an airship. Of course, it wouldn't stand up on examination. And, it, and with, these hoaxes were typically put forward 
less as a hoax than as a prank or a joke. Just it was kind of like the sense of humor of the frontier. When the more outrageous and unbelievable a story was, the better it was because it was just entertainment. Nobody was really serious about hoaxing. You know, speaking of Aurora, I think of an interesting character who I haven't heard about for years, Hayden Hughes, who was really pushing the Aurora, Texas affair. Yeah, he was. I don't think that the charitable interpretation that Hayden was really familiar with the press treatment of airships in uh, 1897, that it was really just part of a pattern of outlandish, made-up stories that I don't really don't believe anybody was meant to take seriously. I think when they were published in newspapers, they were meant and taken as light entertainment. That you know, a story about a Martian crashing an airship was just so obviously outlandish and even preposterous that I think that the average reader just laughed, knew that it was just, you know, a joke. But I think that Hayden Hughes and other people who went to Aurora subsequently, and and there's nothing wrong with going to Aurora on the very slight chance that there was something to the story. But um, I think you just have to understand the context in which that story was told. That is the problem, I think, which is you're looking at something that was written originally in the late 1890s, and things are very different than just, for example, as the newspapers. It wasn't like the New York Times or the Washington Post, and you take these publications seriously, because they're meant to be taken seriously, whether you believe it's a mainstream media, liberal media, or whatever. You have serious people doing serious work. It's not just writing a story to have fun, to sell papers, to make some money, to do wacky things. And even though we have publications that do it now, you have to look at this in the context. But if you take the story separate from the environment in which it was created, I could see where it could be taken more seriously than it should be. Yeah, you have to really have as I did and as other people did, just read enough of the press coverage from the American papers of 1897 to really get a sense of what was going on just at the basic reporting level. Now, this isn't true of all newspapers. All newspapers weren't doing this, but enough of them were that we got an enormous amount of noise. And and some people, including my friend Eddie Bullard, still argue that it was nothing but noise. I do not believe that because this was an international phenomenon. And when you read newspapers in England or Australia reporting, or New Zealand reporting on their airships, you don't have all this noise. This is kind of sober reporting. They're not jokes. They're treated like real news stories. It turns out that what they were seeing in New Zealand in 1909, 1910, Australia, England, their descriptions are very much like what you read in the more sober, less jokey, or sensational stories in 1897 American press. We've got more to come with Jerome Clark. I'm Gene Steinberg. He's Curtis Collins. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. 
Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First game attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. Anytime, any place, anywhere, radio remains the most intimate of all forms of media. At home, at work, in the car, on smartphones. Over 90% of consumers still listen to radio every week. That makes choosing radio as a place to advertise your business one of the best decisions you can make. Email advertise at GCNlive.com and partner up with an experienced GCN representative. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Easy, affordable, effective. This is Dan Pilla. Do you owe the IRS money you can't pay? Are tax debts crippling you? I've defended people from the IRS for over 30 years. I've helped thousands and I can help you too. I wrote the book on IRS settlement and I'm telling you, there's no such thing as a hopeless case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX to finally get free of IRS debt. With the IRS's new programs, there's never been a better time to solve your problem. Call 800-34-NO-TAX. That's 800-34-NO-TAX or my website, danpilla.com. Many medicines used to treat colds and flu contain acetaminophen, a pain reliever and fever reducer found in hundreds of over-the-counter and prescription medicines. But taking too much or more than one medication containing acetaminophen per day can damage your liver. So always read the label and don't take acetaminophen if you drink three or more alcoholic drinks every day. To learn more, visit fda.gov slash otcpaininfo. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Food and Drug Administration. Hi, this is Sophie Winnick, longtime distributor and user of Longevity products. In the last few years, my family went through a crisis. Everything else in my life, including my business, had to be put on the back burner. Thankfully, life is getting back to normal now. But the one thing I never had to worry about was my business and my monthly commission. I've been a distributor for Longevity for over 17 years, since before it was Longevity. And I've got to say, the most amazing thing about this company is the people. While my family was in crisis, other distributors stepped in and helped my customers simply because that's what longevity people do, even for people they don't know. For me, it has never been about getting rich. It was about a product I could stand behind, a company I could count on, and a monthly commission check that has never not once been late in 17 years. Longevity is truly a business for everyone, even people who have too much to do. I'm Sophie Winnick. I'm just like you. I have a real life, real ups and downs, but I know I will always have longevity. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. I'm here to tell you about GCNTelecare.com, a team of board-certified doctors assisting you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Within 15 minutes of registration, care your family can afford. Revolutionizing the healthcare industry, virtual consulting, providing diagnosis of non-emergency medical issues by phone or secure video on computer or smart mobile devices. 
GCNTelecare.com. Virtual care anywhere. Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. After the Paracast can sometimes be called more of the Paracast or an interruption of the Paracast. We never know what's going to happen next, which is the great thing about that show. It's a podcast available only if you subscribe to the Paracast Plus. We also give you a version of this show without the network ads and not just to satisfy the people who complain at YouTube. It's available if you check out plus.theparacast.com. That's plus.theparacast.com. Prices start at just $1.49 a week. And by the way, we are looking into other ways to pay for it. Right now, you can use a major credit card through PayPal or PayPal. But we're looking into other ways for you to pay for your subscription. And we have to have them shortly. We have a bunch of questions from listeners that... Kirk Collins is preparing for us. And one thing to bear in mind here, Jerry hasn't followed all the UFO gossip in recent years, although he's got some news that will interest you about the UFO encyclopedia. In the meantime, Kurt's got them all ready. Let's have a few questions. Well, with that in mind, we'll ask a question first about current events. Usual Suspect wants to know, what is your opinion on To The Stars Academy Venture? Well, uh, as I was explaining to Gene probably more than once, after I published the second volume of the UFO Encyclopedia, which came out, the second edition of this encyclopedia came out in 1998, if you're familiar with that work, you'll know that it was the product of an enormous amount of research. And I got so burned out that it was just hard for me to think anything about UFOs for a long time. And I really turned my interest toward creating what I jokingly referred to as a unified field theory of anomalistics. So I was looking at other stuff other than UFO data, like, you know, people's experiences of fairies and monsters and all kinds of fantastic stuff, and trying to sort that out, what what the meaning of all that was. So I really neglected ufology until recently, when my attention was ripped back into it. But so if you talk to me in six months after I finished the book that I've just started, I'll be a lot more informed because I will be educating myself and catching up on a lot of UFO stuff. So as as far as the To The Stars story goes, all I know right now is what I read in the papers. So I don't really have a strong opinion. I will be delving deeply into that. So ask me again in six, eight months, and I might actually have something worth listening to to say about it. Now, I noticed one thing here. We were talking about this for a while. The fact is, after the initial flurry of donations that brought it over $2 million, donations have stalled big time. We're not hearing too much about it. The number of investors in the project has not increased a lot. It requires a minimum investment of $200, and that gets you 40 shares at $5 each. The total amount raised as of mid-February, is $2,420,643. It sounds like a lot of money. For us, it's probably not a lot of money with all the projects they want to take on. But it's not increased more than a couple of hundred thousand. 
in the last couple of months or so. So I just wonder if either people are wise to it, people are not impressed by it, or they're not keeping the site updated. You know, popular attention is fleeting, God knows. You know, UFOs come in and out of popularity, as we well know. And I don't know. I, I, I just don't know. When I dig into this, which I will be doing, maybe I'll know more about how this works. But it seems to me not surprising with everything else that goes on that once the initial intense attention has passed, that people will move on to other ways to deposit their money. Also, there are no new announcements. We heard about these gun camera things and a few other reports, but there's been nothing new. It's just repeating the same thing. In fact, the last time I saw Leslie Kane on TV, and this was on the Tucker Carlson show on Fox News, And he was surprisingly serious considering his usual approach to different things like this. And she spent a lot of the time not talking about UFO events or anything that the Pentagon UFO study revealed, but about the O'Hare case in Chicago at O'Hare Airport. Just to let you know, it was resurrecting a case over a decade old, but nothing from that study and nothing that hasn't been covered quite a few times, which is part of what we normally see in the UFO field. You do have sightings. MUFON catalogs sightings. Chris Rutkowski catalogs lots of sightings year after year. But there's nothing new about them. Yeah, it reminds me of a line from a John Prine song. All the news just repeats itself. The UFOs lost their novelty a long time ago, and they really have given us nothing more. UFOs are... Not giving us anything new to chew on, that's for sure. And uh, it's just, it's really hard to sustain interest in sightings because, as you say, nothing novel is happening. I mean, what's going on is very strange, extraordinary, unexplained, but it's familiar, way too familiar by now. And again, the public is fickle about such things. And maybe that's the reason why contactees always had to have wilder and wilder claims to keep the public's attention up. They had to come up with a new story. And I sometimes wonder here if some of those contactees, and I've mentioned this before, had something happen that was strange, some kind of experience, and they got the public attention. They got the 15 minutes of fame. And then their followers, such as they were, wanted something new. And not having something new occur... And wanting the attention and the 15 minutes of fame now expand to 30 minutes, they invented something. That's exactly my interpretation of the way that worked. I think you're right. It's kind of like, you know, like mediums. Maybe mediums really did at some point, you know, have some extraordinary connection with something, but they couldn't produce it on demand. And so they began you know, making stuff up, learning, you know, trickery to keep the audience. I, I think, you know, contactees were just the latest iteration of that kind of, you know, contact with some other world, however defined, that it wasn't there on demand. And you may have it once and it doesn't come back again, and then you have to make it up so that you can keep the, keep the game going. And I suspect that even these contactees who were engaged in some degree of conscious hoaxing at some point began themselves to lose track 
of what was true and what was not true. I think there was a really interesting psychology going on there. And I also think that there were what I call experience anomalies, you know, muddling the whole picture. And uh, I think that the closer you look at some of these contactees, the ones who weren't just shameless charlatans out to con little old ladies out of their life savings, and there really weren't very many of them. But if you look closely at the classic contactees, the stories, the whole phenomenon, the whole world they existed in was ragged around the edges, and it's not all black and white. Our, our other questions are a little closer to the airship topic, so uh, let, let me go on and, and read the one from Wade. He says, this question may seem rather broad, but it seems to me that after 100 years plus, this subject has brought on a renewed interest to which I question why. It would be one thing if anyone thought there were evidence of superior aeronautical engineering at play or a secret space program, but they were just balloons apparently in use during the previous century. So do you agree with any of that? Well, they, they, they weren't dirigibles in use in America at the time because there were no dirigibles in America at the time. You know, aeronautical historians are insistent on that. It's only people who don't know the history, the aeronautical history, who claim they were just ordinary dirigibles. They weren't. They, they were fairly extraordinary in their way, and they were, they were huge. Some of them were described as 150, 200 feet long. Whoever invented them and was a real inventor or a conglomeration of inventors would have stood to make an enormous amount of money. But there is zero evidence that these guys existed, that their ships existed. All we have is this testimony and the claimed experiences of all kinds of people, some of them not reliable, some of them apparently quite reliable. And again, this was an international phenomenon that the same thing was seen in a number of different countries. Uh, you know, under similar circumstances, the descriptions were the same. And not in America, not in any of the other nations where these sightings were reported, did evidence of a secret society of aeronauts ever emerge. It just didn't happen. We have more with Jerome Clark about the 1897 airship mystery. Kurt Collins is our guest co-host. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items and entails T-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast jumbo tote bag, all sorts of T-shirts and jackets and stuff like that for men and women. We have a Paracast aluminum water bottle. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality, you know, great T-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children, stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Paracast. You go to store.theparacast.com, stop by, and take a shopping tour. 
You've been hearing Dr. Wallach talking about 90 essential nutrients, keeping the body healthy. GCNteam.com now has Beyond Tangy Tangerine tablets, 60 plant-derived minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, packed in a powerful tablet. But that's not it. 160,000 auric points, a knockout punch to free radicals. Call 877-878-4203 or go to GCNteam.com. That's 877-878-4203. The answer to being in control of your own health care is freedom from insurance. Become part of a group of self-pay patients that come together to share in each other's medical expenses. Individual share amounts begin at $107 a month and $347 for families. Choose from three health sharing programs. Holistic treatments may be eligible for sharing. See guidelines. Discount programs available for dental, vision, and pharmacy. Go to libertyoncall.org. That's libertyoncall.org. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. I'm going to ask you something in a moment here, but what do you think about stories and claims about a breakaway or secret civilization? Because that's sometimes raised in connection with the airship mystery and even UFOs in general. You just couldn't hide anything like that. That's just the kind of explanation that people come up with when they can't think of anything else. You know, it's a kind of it's a reductionism, really. We've got a question from Pig Farmer. This is similar to what we talked about. He says, should the stories of 1897 airships be taken literally or are they meant as entertainment at the time? Has that been lost in the intervening decades? Well, I think just a few minutes ago I talked about the, the entertainment value of stories like that. Like the Aurora story of the Martian crash, I'm sure it was just made up to entertain people. And it was understood by those who read the story in 1897 that it was just simply meant as amusement, that it wasn't meant as a description of a literal event. Yes, you read these old newspapers. Even now, you can see some of the humor. Some of it's still funny. Do you know of other examples where they did stories like this, that where they were playing jokes on residents? I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm familiar only with the airship stories from the period. Well, there were a lot of stories of wonders of various kinds. I think the... the the phony airship stories are part of the tradition of wonder stories, marvels. And these, the marvels included things like, you know, lake monsters, you know, creatures, uh, various wonders, the things that, you know, just seem not possible. People's supernatural encounters. Now, I'm not saying all these things were completely false, but if you were to make up a story, you would, you would often make it a ghost story or something like that. Or just some other thing, even if it's not supernatural, just some, you know, rather unusual and out of the ordinary and very interesting claims about, you know, human events, some human experience. Yeah, it it wasn't just airships. It was a bunch of stuff. And uh, I actually wrote had a book come out some years ago dealing with that. I called the book Unnatural Phenomena. And it was about these 19th century newspaper stories of just fantastic things that probably didn't happen in consensus reality or even in someone's perceived experience. 
but were just entertaining stories of marvels and fantastic events. On the other hand, I don't think anyone, except for very few people, will remember the hoaxes that Jim Mosley and Gray Barker did in the 50s and 60s. I don't think so. I don't think they'll survive. Too few people cared about them. They're remembered by those of us who were around at the time. Right, but we don't have much time left. I'm not speaking about you, Kurt. But Jerry and I are as old as the hills. I think the, that those are worth preserving because some of those some of those did have an impact. Certainly the men in black had a lasting impact. So it's good to have that information. You know, some people think that it's, you know, that's the warts of ufology, but I think that has to be preserved too. Well, you know, Gray Barker single-handedly created the men in black mystery. Yet, when they came out with the graphic comic book, neither... Ray Barker nor John Keel were paid for the germination of an idea that resulted in billion-dollar grosses from three major motion pictures. Well, when you say that Barker invented the idea of men in black, I mean, that's true in some sense. But just today, I was reading a clipping from, oh, it was from the 1870s or 1880s. I just printed out this afternoon put in a file here, which I have in my hand. But this is, there are men in black stories that go back a long time. And even in a UFO context, the first men in black story was the, there was the man in black in the Maury Island case from, or the Maury Island hoax from June 1947. Maybe then that Ray Palmer and Kenneth Arnold created the men in black mystery. I'm saying though, other than that, Barker was a main figure in pushing the idea. Yes, that's true. But then, you know, I agree with the observation that Palmer had a lot of influence in the early UFO field. In fact, Keel calls him the father of ufology. Yeah, sightings were the father of ufology. Or maybe Charles Fort was the first one put sightings between book covers and, and perceived that they were part of an international phenomenon. I don't, I don't think that Palmer was that important a figure, except to a certain subset of hardcore science fiction readers. But if you read the newspaper coverage in, in the summer of 1947, you never see Palmer's name mentioned, but you do run across Ford's name. I think, well, some of the people that were following uh, Ray Palmer went on to be influential, and they were, they were devoted. So there was, there was something to that, but you're right. It was mainly driven by the events that were in the news, you know, primary from uh, well, the sightings. The, the, pe- the people who put this thing into a focus, if you read, again, the newspaper coverage, Summer Night 47, which is our best representation of what was going on then, they were not Palmerites. They were members of the Fortean Society. And they were the ones who were interviewed and said, look, this is nothing new. Sightings like this go back a long way, which was a revelation to almost everybody because the Fortean Society was tiny. But these guys had the special knowledge that um, put a perspective on what was going on after Kenneth Arnold's sighting. It's just a myth that Palmer was a major figure in this. Palmer was a guy who... Ex- who exploited anything he could, including Richard Shaver's mental illness. So he exploited flying saucer sciences. He exploited everything. But he wasn't the guy who started it. And he wasn't the guy who put it into the context of extraterrestrial visitation for the average newspaper reader. 
Let me throw an outside question at you here, since we're talking about an experience phenomenon, an event phenomenon. And that is, how much of UFO sightings are really just the experience, as opposed to something that's possibly has an external reality, is an external event? I think that the high strangeness cases are overwhelmingly experience anomalies. I think that the event anomalies, as I say, are the hardcore cases. Now, some of them, you know, the average witness doesn't have access to a radar, so we can't document that the daylight disk he saw was physically there. But let's just assume that the, the ordinary UFO sighting of, you know, some nocturnal light or daylight disk or something like that is an observation of an actual object whose existence is potentially documentable. But when somebody talks about men in black or monsters, otherworldly journeys, abductions, where you're just going off the scale and strangeness, and the stranger the story gets, the less verifiable it is, the harder it is to prove that it happened. It's actually the rather, you know, the typical 1950s sightings that NICAP was interested in, that Kehoe was interested in, are really the evidential cases because they involve, you know, the kind of technological verification that shows that something was there that shouldn't have been there and that had certain characteristics that are really hard to explain in terms of, you know, what we, we as humans can do with aerial vehicles in our time. But as time went by, it was as if the older supernatural traditions got attached to this core phenomenon, this core UFO phenomenon, and old themes that are part of human experience, as long as there have been humans, get attached to this, and they take on the coloration of, you know, extraterrestrial activity. But it yields no proof or evidence that is equal to the degree of its strangeness, of, you know, and uh, it just seems to me that it's probably futile to connect, say, you know, uh, you know, some great radar visual case with some fantastic abduction story. They're, they may be just two entirely different things. We've got Jerome Clark putting it together once again. Curtis Collins joins us. More listener questions on the other side. You're in the Paracast. Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Classic science fiction at its best. Available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R O C K O I D S.com. 
Message and data rates may apply. You don't follow the herd. You blaze your own trail. And you're as adventurous in the kitchen as you are in life. Whether it's paddleboard yoga or Peruvian steak, you're the first to try new things. So are we. We're Green Chef, the first USDA-certified organic meal kit delivery service. We offer delicious meal plans for seven different lifestyles. Paleo, gluten-free, keto, vegetarian, vegan, carnivore, and omnivore. Want to be the first of your friends to try Green Chef? Discover our exclusive introductory deal by texting the keyword FUN66 to 543-543. We believe that cooking, just like life, should be all about experience and flavor. And by exploring dinner options with Green Chef, you'll try new recipes, techniques, and ingredients for bold new restaurant-level flavors. It's like enjoying a new cooking class, but in your own home. To experience this culinary adventure, text now and discover our exclusive introductory deal. Text FUN66 to 543-543. That's F-U-N-66 to 543-543. Are you one of the 70% of Americans that want to own your own business, afraid to leave the security of your current job to pursue your dreams? I'm Pharmacist Keith. Dr. Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy, and myself want to show you a low-cost way to create your own business, working around your current job schedule, creating an extra income for you and your family by joining his crusade, spreading his message of better health. To learn more, visit radio.recordedvideo.com, radio.recordedvideo.com. That's radio.recordedvideo.com. Have you checked your Google search results lately? Search results are usually the first impression that people form of you or your business. So make sure that they create a positive impression with ReputationDefender.com. What the Internet says about you can have a big impact on your life and your livelihood, even if it's not true. Fortunately, you can now control how you look online and in online search results with ReputationDefender.com. Call 800-831-0771 now. That's 800-831-0771 for your free reputation. Analysis. If you have negative material from an ex-employee, upset patient, or former client, newspaper article, legal issue, social media, or other source showing up in your search results, you can combat it with ReputationDefender.com. Our dedicated experts in patented technology can help make your online search results look their best. Call 800-831-0771 to learn more. 800-831-0771. That's 800-831-0771. Or visit ReputationDefender.com. This is Dan Pilla. Do you owe the IRS money you can't pay? Are tax debts crippling you? I've defended people from the IRS for over 30 years. I've helped thousands and I can help you too. I wrote the book on IRS settlement and I'm telling you, there's no such thing as a hopeless case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX to finally get free of IRS debt. With the IRS's new programs, there's never been a better time to solve your problem. Call 800-34-NO-TAX. That's 800-34-NO-TAX or my website, danpilla.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Kurt, more questions? We had a couple more. There was another one from Pig Farmer, and he says that in the Great New England Airship Hoax of 1909, and that's a that's a title, uh, Wallace Tillinghast claimed to have invented an advanced flying machine that he was testing at night. This resulted in a number of people witnessing it and reporting as such. Do you think something very similar to the effects described in 1909, were in, at work in 1897? Were, were people seeing things because other people had seen dirigibles? 
Well, yes and no. Of course, you're going to have an effect like that. But um, as I want to stress again, the airships were an international phenomenon. And the airships were described pretty much the same way wherever they were seen. There was no question that people were observing things that looked like, you know, fantastic dirigibles. And my memory of the Tillinghast affair is a little, I need, it needs some refreshing. But as I recall, and I could be wrong, if I am, I should be corrected, Tillinghast didn't actually claim that he had invented these airships. He just let it let other people believe that without specifically denying it. Now, in California, November 1896, no, December, there were stories of people who claimed that they had invented it, but the people were not traceable. There was a guy named E.H. Benjamin who claimed to be an agent or an, an attorney for an inventor, but that inventor never showed up and never revealed himself or even proved that he existed. So, you know, there's all these stories that people, you know, people tell stories. It's kind of like crash saucers, you know. You can always find someone who says he was there and he knew about it and so on and so on, but he can never prove it. And either the person is making it up or or just has somehow convinced himself that it happened, but it's just not provable, and eventually you realize that his testimony is worthless as evidence. I think it's something like that kind of social psychological process that goes on. That reminds me a bit of the the people in the old West that claim to be some of the the dead outlaws, or a lot of Jesse James and Billy the Kid walking around. And I think our friend Ray Palmer claimed to have discovered one of the survivors. I forget which outlaw it was, but there was an old man claiming to be a famous outlaw and had his picture yeah, it taken. Was, it, it was Al Jennings who claimed to be Jesse James. And that was absolutely false. We can <laughs> want to make sure people know that. So. The last listener question is from uh, Angela Lauren, and he asks, how can we plot the changes over time of what people have seen in the skies? We went from airships to saucers to eggs to cigars and most recently triangles. What can we gather from this change of what people are seeing? Has the tech of whatever we are seeing changed? Or more likely, in my opinion, it is only because humans are projecting their own understanding. One thing that we have learned in this age of... uh modern, uh, I mean, uh, this age of modern historical scholarship on the phenomenon, is that the modern UFO age really did not begin in June 1947. It actually began in the early 1940s. As we've gotten access to all kinds of newspaper stories, official documents about Foo Fighters and so on, we see virtually the entire modern UFO phenomenon there in about starting in about 1940, people describing exactly the kinds of UFOs, saucers, discs, triangles, uh, cigar shapes, all these things that, that have been reported since actually began in about 1940. And uh, so the UFO phenomenon is actually older than, the modern phenomenon is actually a few years older than we think it is. And the only thing that's changed is that all these high strangeness stories and experiences over time grew attached to that core. The core has remained amazingly stable. There's a very good book that was written a few years ago, and I actually wrote the the forward to it by a guy named Keith Chester. 
it's a book on the uh, Foo Fighters, and it's virtually the definitive treatment. He did an enormous amount of research. And as I pointed out in the foreword, this book documents that this phenomenon is a few years older than we thought it was. So the change is, is the change is not in the basic UFO, it's in the high strangeness that becomes attached to that basic phenomenon. I recall uh, Ed Rupel reading his book. Uh, he makes a, a maddeningly brief mention of having witnessed Foo Fighters himself. And, and you know, I thought that was really interesting, and I certainly wanted to hear more about it. I don't remember that. I remember he's talk, he writes briefly about meeting an old guy who had seen the 1896 airship in California. And virtually nobody got to talk face-to-face, nobody in our time, or at least in earlier time when these guys would have still been alive, got to talk with a witness to the airship. That would have been really good because it would have been unmitigated by this often faulty and dubious newspaper coverage. But Rupel doesn't go into any detail. He just says the guy saw this thing. And he doesn't really go into it. And I, it's very frustrating. I wish he had. I wanted to ask what you thought about something that was kind of in between the airships and, and before the 40s era. There was there were a number of mystery airplane reports. Have you looked into those? What happens with the airships is that they kind of evolve into mystery airplanes. But the problem is that the vocabulary in the early age of aviation is a little shady. It's a little ambiguous. So sometimes they will refer to something as a quote-unquote aeroplane, and other times I'll call it an airship. And you have to really read and look for the detail to find out exactly whether they're referring to like a, a monoplane, a biplane, or like a dirigible. It's not always clear because the vocabulary begins to change in the early 20th century. So there were mystery airplanes that apparently were biplanes or, or monoplanes of, that at least were mysterious to the people of the time and, and had no clear origin. But it's just, it's just hard to say what they were about. They were, could very well have been just an evolutionary development of the airship phenomenon. But there, by, by that time, there were genuine airplanes flying around. They were rare. They, if they flew over your town, that was a novel experience, and people came running out to see it, but they were there. So it's just, it's just hard to know what to make of these stories. They're not, in other words, as clearly anomalous as the airship reports were. If I can change the subject, I wanted to ask you about, because you, know, you were talking about how, talking to one of the few witnesses. But you, uh, as I understand it, you met with uh, Kenneth Arnold and, and had access to some of his research. And I think very few people in the UFO scene now realize how much of a UFO investigator he was and the people that he wouldn't, uh, he, the witnesses he talked to, the reports he collected. So what kind of records did he have? Did you get a look at those? We'll have the answer to that question about Kenneth Arnold and more with Jerome Clark and Kurt and Gene. You're in the Paracast. You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
Hear that? That's the sound of a house being trashed while a gang of thieves ransack the place. And what they don't steal will be destroyed. This year, resolve not to be the next victim of a break-in. Go to faketv.com and discover a device that creates the illusion someone inside is watching TV, even when you're miles away. Security is a mindset, and Fake TV should be part of your security solution. Be vigilant, but not fearful. Faketv.com. Anytime, any place, anywhere, radio remains the most intimate of all forms of media. At home, at work, in the car, on smartphones. Over 90% of consumers still listen to radio every week. That makes choosing radio as a place to advertise your business one of the best decisions you can make. Email advertise at GCNlive.com and partner up with an experienced GCN representative. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Easy, affordable, effective. I tried other brands, but I came back to my sunshine. For the best hot or cold pain relief, get the best. Get a Sunny Bay heating pad. Sometimes life can be a pain in the neck or back or shoulder. And the best relief for that pain is a Sunny Bay heating pad. Did you know that the American College of Physicians said that one of the best ways to treat muscle pain is heat therapy? Sunny Bay heating pads are handmade with high quality, can be used at home or at work, and have a lifetime 100% positive rating on both Amazon and Etsy. Why take another pill? Many people use our Sunny Bay heating pads alone and got rid of the neck pain. Long distance travel or long hours in front of a computer can take its toll on your body. See why our homegrown small business at sunny-bay.com has tried to help people just like you. Get your Sunny Bay heating pads at sunny-bay.com. That's sunny-bay.com. Or call 253-678-1361. For hot and cold therapy, sunny-bay.com. Bitcoin is losing crypto market share to other digital currencies. Bitcoin's astronomical rise has led to the creation of numerous competitors like Ethereum, Ripple, and Litecoin, which have also seen massive gains in value. According to Quartz, Bitcoin made up 85% of the crypto market one year ago, and today it has fallen to 36%. Remember, the only way to win in the casino is to take chips off the table. Call Miles Franklin at 866-485-4346 and let us show you how to quickly turn your Bitcoin into the 5,000-year-old safety of precious metals. Miles Franklin can quickly convert your Bitcoin to precious metals with one phone call at 866-485-4346. That's Miles Franklin celebrating our 29th year in business without ever receiving a customer complaint. Call us at 866-485-4346. Fast easy, safe, and convert your Bitcoin into gold with one phone call. Are you still looking for that one iodine that you can really trust? A medical doctor endorsed product that is backed by honest research and true integrative science. Then search no further. Go to Nutramedical.com for Dr. Bill Deagle's Nutriodine, proven time and time again to be the very best iodine available for you. Nutriodine is the only Tesla-activated monatomic plasma iodine in the world. It optimizes mitochondrial function and generation of new mitochondria from totally neutralizing the venom from a desert recluse spider bite in Southern California to eliminating malaria parasites reported by medical missionaries in Central India. Dr. Bill's Nutriodine is simply the most powerful healing formula there is. Nutriodine clears the body of all known pathogens, restores it to an alkaline state, and even promotes stem cell regeneration. Order Dr. Bill's Nutriodine today at 888-212-8871 or visit us online at Nutramedical.com.
Hi, it's Grant Cameron from PresidentialUFO.com. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Okay, Jerry, you met Kenneth Arnold? I knew him. He was actually, yeah, I knew him reasonably well. Tell us more. Well, he was pretty much as advertised. An ordinary, unimaginative guy. Just, you know, he was a, very much a Westerner and conservative, both in socially and politically. You know, he wasn't stupid, but he wasn't an intellectual, let's put it that way. I like Ken Arnold, but he was an ordinary guy, and he wasn't anybody who made this stuff up. And basically, if you asked him what he thought, he basically parodied Ray Palmer, because Palmer was the first guy that he hooked up with after his sighting. And he was completely confused by what he'd seen, and he needed somebody who sounded as if he knew what he was talking about to guide him. So even in the 1970s, 1980s, when I knew Arnold, I'd say, well, what do you think about this? And he would say, well, my buddy Ray Palmer said, <laughs> so I just get some cockeyed Palmer thing. But I had the impression that Arnold really didn't think about these things when he wasn't being called upon as the guy who had heralded the UFO age. What happened was that after Arnold had his sighting in June 1947, he really got interested, and he loved to fly. He loved to fly around the Northwest and just do this and that. And so he decided he was one thing he was going to do was fly his plane around the Northwest and look personally into some of the UFO reports that he read in the newspaper. So he'd fly around, and he'd talk to people, and he talked to people who claimed they had seen flying men in the early part of 1948 in the state of Washington. And, uh, and the most memorable one, the one that I wrote about, was his interview with Samuel Eaton Thompson, the guy who claimed he had met the, the naked Venusians. And uh, I got Thompson's tape of his interview with Thompson. Thompson's experience took place in the early spring of 1950. And I've written about that. I've give, given the full account of that story. And it, it was really interesting. I was thinking about this recently, in fact. Arnold's interview with Samuel Eden Thompson. And Arnold had the classic event anomaly UFO sighting. Thompson had a classic experience anomaly UFO encounter. And so between them, when... Arnold was talking with Samuel Eden Thompson. You were dealing with the two extremes of what would become the UFO experience. And I'm thinking about writing an essay on, on what that was like, the symbolic significance of that meeting. Was Eden's story, did, did it receive press coverage? Very little. It, it's a Thompson story? Oh, yes, Very, mm -hmm. Yeah, there were only one or two newspaper stories, and they were not detailed. They, they reported that this guy, he was an old guy, he's about 78 years old, retired railroad man, and that he was driving home through rural Washington, and he had seen this saucer on the ground, and he, he went to uh, examine it, and he saw these, well, the story goes on, but essentially these were like Edenic Venusians. They were beautiful, naked men, women, and children who were just incredibly innocent and didn't even really know how to fly their saucer. 
And he claimed that he had stayed with them for about three days. And um, the story is completely off the charts, of course. But if you listen to this tape, and, and this was Arnold's impression as well, Arnold told me, there was no question this guy believed it. Now, Arnold thought the story was so ridiculous that he and Doris, his wife, you can hear them having a hard time keep a straight face as this completely earnest guy relates this bizarre outlandish tale that he says happened to him. But Arnold knew this guy really meant it. And there are all kinds of clues. If you, if you, if you listen carefully to what he's saying, the way he says it, it's very hard to believe that he made this up. It's equally impossible to believe that it happened in consensus reality. So the only thing that Arnold could figure out was that this guy had had some kind of visionary experience or unusually vivid dream. I think that's, you know, given, um, you know, Arnold's vocabulary and his understanding, I think he's probably pretty close to the truth. But this was clearly what I would call an experience anomaly. Well, about that tape, does do you still have a copy of it? Is, is that available at any anywhere? No, unfortunately, my copy, <laughs> there's things that happen to me that I, when they happen to me, I always say, gee, I'm glad I'm not a paranoid, but the tape disappeared. Oh, boy. And, but, 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 but the good news is that a full transcript of the tape was made, and was was on that, it was, I've heard, I heard the tape before it disappeared, and yeah, I have the transcripts, so I was able to give a full account of everything that's on that tape. So there, there are no part of the story that's missing. Do you know if any of his UFO records survived? Now, that's a whole other story, and the answer is, unfortunately, no. Uh, there was, back in the 1990s, I was dealing with one of his daughters in an effort to reclaim his files. And it turns out that they were discarded long ago. All the case material that he had from the from the early, late 40s, early 50s that he had collected from his own investigations, it's all gone. It apparently was, was thrown away. He died, I believe, in 1984, if my memory is correct and all of his files. So I don't think anybody really understood what he had. And it was a few years later in the early 1990s when suddenly we realized, you know, I was going to fly out to to Meridian, Idaho, to collect that stuff, and, and it turned out it didn't exist. Oh. So I, yeah, that's a real tragedy. It's not uncommon. I remember after Jim Mosley died, his daughter, Betty, took all of the stuff that she thought had value and had a garage sale. In fact, somebody posted in our forum saying, would you like to buy one of Jim Mosley's electric typewriters? <laughs> yeah, that happens. Oh, boy. Uh, it's it, it just, you, you don't even want to think about it. It's just so heartbreaking. What's well, also, you yeah. reach the point where real life gets involved and... You're trying to cut back and you have 3,000 pounds of stuff and you want to make it 2,000 pounds. And you think, am I ever going to use this UFO stuff again? What value does it have? And I've done some of that. 
There are also cases where UFOs were really an issue within the family. For example, the husband and the father were spending too much time running out on weekends and interviewing UFO witnesses and collecting UFO materials, reading UFO books, attending UFO conferences, neglecting the family. And so by the time the guy dies, there's a real resentment of his UFO involvement. And so the vengeance comes in destroying his life's work. There have been cases of that. Yeah, I can see where that happens and why that happens. But at the same token, Jim was giving a lot of stuff away deliberately to a few people that he liked. He sent me some stuff. He sent somebody in New Jersey who was head of a UFO organization way back when. And so he sent that stuff to him as well, mostly because he just, you know, was trying to cut back on his life and he never thought he'd have any need of any of that material for better or worse. I have another question which kind of goes back to the early UFO cases that seem to have more solidity about them. And we've talked about this before, but I'll raise it and we can discuss it in further detail in the final segment, plus whatever else Kurt wants to bring up. And that is, how much of what we saw in the early days was really secret test aircraft? And maybe people misinterpret a few things and the secret aircraft suddenly is doing all sorts of maneuvers that it really couldn't do. More to come with Jerry, Gene, and Kurt. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. As you know, neighbors, web hosting can be pretty cheap, but not all hosting is the same. DreamHost wins best of awards year after year. You get unlimited disk space, unlimited bandwidth, and even the low-cost plans put your sites on high-performance SSDs. Want to know more about what DreamHost has to offer? Go to technightowl.com host. Once again, that's technightowl.com host. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. Hunters, anglers, campers, and survivalists. Get back to nature. Expand your horizons with the highest quality, most versatile, unique slingshots and slingbows on the market at slingbow.com. Slingbow products are compact and models start from just $17.98. They're perfect for your bug out bag or storing in your vehicle. Give yourself and your loved ones the excitement and tradition of slingbow. A new frontier in archery and truly modern twist on this primitive survival tool. Feel the thrill only at slingbow.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a house being trashed while a gang of thieves ransack the place. And what they don't steal will be destroyed. This year, resolve not to be the next victim of a break-in. Go to faketv.com and discover a device that creates the illusion someone inside is watching TV, even when you're miles away. Security is a mindset, and fake TV should be part of your security solution. Be vigilant, but not fearful. Faketv.com.
One out of four people listening to my voice right now could die from heart disease. This could be your last year, and you don't even know it because you don't know the early warning signs. If you think you're safe because your cholesterol levels are normal, think again because studies show that 75% of heart attack patients also had normal cholesterol levels. Let me introduce you to Strauss Heart Drops, a world-famous heart and brain formula made in Canada. It's time-tested and will give you clinical results in 90 days or your money back. Learn more at signsofheartdisease.com. They are shipping free this month. Hello, my name is Marjorie Wildcraft. I'm the founder of The Grow Network, which is an online community of people who produce their own food and medicine. We are really into backyard self-reliance. If you want this lifestyle, I suggest your first step be to learn some basic home medicine. Just the other day, my 18-year-old son came to me and said, Mama, I got a sore throat. Can you fix me up? And I said, Sure, Ryan. And in about 24 hours, he was better. The best home medicine for you to start out with is garlic. It's an amazing natural antibiotic, and I can show you how to use garlic to handle ear infections, sore throats, colds, and flus. As a way for you to get to know a little bit more about me and the Grow Network, I've written up an easy introduction on how to use garlic. It's at gcnwellness.com. Now, the station manager told me that I needed to say the URL at least twice, even though it feels kind of weird. But if you're interested in backyard self-reliance, you are one of us. Go to www.gcnwellness.com and let's connect up. The answer to being in control of your own health care is freedom from insurance. Become part of a group of self-pay patients that come together to share in each other's medical expenses. Individual share amounts begin at $107 a month and $347 for families. Choose from three health sharing programs. Holistic treatments may be eligible for sharing. See guidelines. Discount programs available for dental, vision, and pharmacy. Go to libertyoncall.org. That's libertyoncall.org. This is Jacques Vallée. You're listening to the podcast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. So, Jerry Clark, what do you think about the impact of early government experimentation, especially with the stuff they picked up from the Nazis at the end of World War II? Yeah, I think that was pretty slight, somewhere between slight and non-existent. What's happened, paradoxically, is that with the passage of time, the secret weapon or the secret experimental aircraft with extraordinary performance characteristics becomes more real. And a, and a real part, a real possibility when you're investigating a UFO case that this indeed could be some kind of advanced weapons technology, advanced aviation technology that is within our capacity. It's just classified. But in those days, back in the early days, we know what the what the aircraft technology was then, and it didn't, it couldn't imitate what flying discs were doing. But in time, over the decades, yes. When you're investigating a case or someone tells you about, say, a, you know, observing a big triangular-shaped craft, you have to consider the possibility that it could be one of ours. And as I said, is it possible the reason they seem so strange is because maybe people put too many things into it. You know, the information is not quite accurate. And if you exaggerate it in one direction as opposed to another it seems stranger than it really is. Or I think probably what happens more often in my experience is that people downplay the strangeness of it for fear of ridicule or just their own inability to process 
a truly unexpected experience that's just simply out of their expectation of what you can see or experience. I think that that plays a larger role in many cases than in the cases of exaggeration and and wishful thinking. There's a real strong social pushback against people reporting strange experiences. So we internalize that. And if we do have a strange experience or strange observation, we really try to minimize its defiance of ordinarily understood reality. So therefore, it's different. It's taking a case and making it more mundane than it truly is. Yeah, I think that happens because people don't appreciate. I, I always maintain, and I don't, I'm surprised that this is not widely understood, the single biggest social factor in UFO history is the presence of ridicule. Ridicule has defined almost everything that has gone on since Kenneth Arnold reported his sightings. UFO sightings, UFO beliefs and theories have always been expressed in defiance of withering ridicule. And that's one reason there's no scientific advancement of the subject, because scientists don't want to be ridiculed. Why people who see UFOs usually don't talk about it, they don't want to be ridiculed. People don't want to be associated with it because they don't want to be ridiculed. So knowledge does not advance. People just cover their heads because they don't want society to be making fun of them. I want to make two points about that. One is to challenge it just a bit that ridicule pre-existed. It was this existed and was in effect way before flying saucers and even sea serpents and, and probably, I think there's even instances of in the Bible, I think with Doubting Thomas. Some people want to think that it was created for, for flying saucers. I, I, I never said it was invented for UFOs. No. Yeah, no, I'm just but, saying but, that it is a major factor in the way the UFO controversy developed. That ridicule was always attached to it. Ridicule is attached to all kinds of socially unacceptable claims and experiences. UFOs aren't the only one, but we're talking about UFOs. That's why I mention it in the context. Right. Of there are some, though, that, that think it, it was part of a government disinformation scheme, and I think that's a, a huge exaggeration. But um, what do you think about the idea that, you know, besides the ridicule, there, there's been a lot of exaggeration of a UFO cover-up and just what the government knows. So have you ever met someone within the government that, or, or in talking to Dr. Hynek, that you thought that there actually was someone that, that had substantial knowledge beyond what anyone else has? I've met people who wanted me to believe they did. I think that actual UFO hoaxes are relatively rare. Even the Air Force said there was about 1% of the stories that the Air Force examined that seemed to be somebody's conscious fiction. And there are some subsets of UFO claims where there are more hoaxes than usual. And I think that in stories of government cover-ups and crash saucers and stuff, I think a lot of that stuff is conscious fiction. And if someone tells me that he is privy to huge government UFO secrets or hardware bodies, you know, I just shrug it off because, you know, it's just a story. Unless someone can actually prove that there's a cover-up and that there are bodies and wreckage, it's just not worth listening to these people. Because so many of them just are proven liars and the rest are suspect. 
there's been a suggestion that some of the things that came out in the 80s about abductions and Dulcy and things like that were uh, things that were planted by a government disinformation agents. And uh, that seems implausible to me, but I thought your views on that would be interesting to hear. You mean like a Richard Doty? I didn't want to say his name. Why not? Maybe he'll object to it and want to come on the show so we can talk to him. My impression, I'm hardly an authority on this, but Doty's just you know, a pretty low-level guy, and I don't know that he had, for it isn't noble, but larger motives. You know, I, I just, uh, you know, all I know is that that stuff is a bunch of sick crap. And uh, <laughs> that's all it is. That's all I need to know about it. Well, he may be the kind of guy that has an overinflated image of himself. So he puts himself in places where maybe he doesn't deserve to be. I'm just being kind, too kind. That seems reasonable. I call it the dark side fantasy. That's my particular name for it. But I remember at one time it was a big thing. I'm glad it hasn't been a big thing for a long time. It survives mostly in the X-Files. Yeah. Yep, yep, that's right. Good point. By the way, I do have a letter from Rick Doty dating to early November about him being involved in some things, including exorcism. Do we start with him? Oh, no. (laughs) I don't know where to go with that, so I'm just going to drop it, okay? Jerry Clark, please tell our listeners before this gets off the rails any more than it is where we can find more of your stuff. My last book was published in 2012, And I am just about to embark on the third edition of my UFO encyclopedia, an item of news that seems to be exciting to some people, which is quite flattering. But yes, we're going to have another book out. So it's updating my UFO encyclopedia with all kinds of new information on old cases that's come to light in the last 20 years, plus trying to update with what's happened in the last 20 years. So it's going to be a lot of work, and I've got some good people who have pledged to help me. And we're going to have a real good book at the end of it. When do you think it'll be out? It's supposed to be out in the fall, but I haven't, since I haven't written one word of it yet. <laughs> but I promised my publisher I'd deliver the manuscript in the spring. So anyway, I'm so, confident it's going to be a good book, not because I'm a brilliant genius, but because I have some brilliant geniuses who are helping me, people like Eddie Bullard and Bill Chalker and Tom Tulane and people like that who are very capable people. Okay, he doesn't have his site up yet. We'll have to help him get a website up. We'll force him into it. Kurt Collins has a website, which is blueblurrylines.com. It is the ultimate tongue twister, blueblurrylines.com. You can find us on Twitter if you look for the Paracast, two Paracast fan clubs on Facebook, the group and the community. Choose the one you like. After the Paracast is our exclusive podcast available only to members of the Paracast Plus. Also, CastBox, this podcast app, they're also offering Paracast Plus. And they give you more options to pay for it, I think, but you don't get the special option to enter our forums. But otherwise, it gives you the shows. Anyway, if you want to subscribe to the Paracast Plus direct from us, it's plus.theparacast.com for more info, plus.theparacast.com. And we also give you a version of the show free of the network ads and better quality audio. Kurt Collins has been my guest co-host. Thanks again, Kurt. He'll return on After the Paracast with some surprises. Jerry Clark, thank you for joining us on the Paracast. 
Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun as always. The Paracast, featuring Gene Steinberg and Christopher O'Brien, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.